also say a toe to so. You know what? A toe to so. A fucking a toe to so. Hello, welcome back to this episode of The Bottleman That is Free. Uh, it is, of course, myself, Riley, and I'm joined as ever by co-host of the show, uh, Paris Marks. Paris, how's it going? Hello, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm traveling, uh, traveling around Canada, promoting my new book, uh, feeling good, you know, writing about technology. That's, that's right. Uh, going up, getting up on stage and singing about uh, criticisms of Rogers. No, no, this is... Just another in uh, our uh, arsenal of classic japes that I've decided to pull out of. Uh, it is, of course, uh, it is of course the bottleman. It is Riley, and it's Dan. Dan, I'm you back. have been away. I've been, been away. away for a while. I've been away, and now I'm back. I went to the the great Pacific Northwest, the American side. Let's see. I traveled to Olympia, Eugene, Oregon, Portland, Oregon, Bellingham, Seattle, the Emerald City. I rocked them all and ended ended the tour in uh canada's texas you know calgary calgary stampede of course now i have an important question to ask you yeah um as most politicians do go to the calgary stampede of course to prove that they are um you know down home lads Mm -hmm. did you see pierre polyev and was he holding any novelty money i did not see Pierre, but uh, I did see a lot of very uh, red-faced people in cowboy hats, uh, just getting sauced, eating a lot of fried food. When I showed up in Calgary, uh, when we landed and checked into the hotel, there was kind of the one-two punch happening of Calgary Stampede uh, visitors uh, staying at the hotel and getting sloshed, and also a rugby team. And what I'm assuming are some... They're going a different direction with the bulls this year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't have to ride a bull, but you do. You do have to like not. You have to like ruck over a giant guy and try to like you know stay on the ball. That's right. That's right. It's definitely some out of work, uh, out of work rig pigs. I think too at the bar in the hotel. That was was pretty wild. The first thing I saw when I got into the hotel were two rugby guys holding another rugby guy who looked kind of like Philip Seymour Hoffman in Bookie Nights, but wearing a Metallica T-shirt. Who was. <laughs> definitely going to vomit on himself before they got him back to the hotel room so yeah yeah uh, another another great taken from us too soon uh the philip many called him the philip seymour hoffman of rugby that's right um yeah uh, but i mean look here's the thing is this a rock talk episode no but what i need you to do is tell me in detail about the calgary stampede it's a thing i've heard of i've seen in my school books and i've become vaguely aware that like it's our version of the Iowa State Fair, yeah. Uh, without a butter cow, uh, to uh, to you know, with, without a butter cow, let let that be all that need to be said. Well, one one thing I really noticed is that um, so the stampede, as far as I can tell, a lot of the a lot of the stampede that I experienced, uh, I didn't go into the 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 rodeo area, area um, but a lot of the stampede that I experienced and that um, Caligonians experience as well takes place in the parking lot of the saddle dome um which was scorching hot blazing hot and um as far as i can tell you wander around from big stage to other big stage you, you catch some bands you know and then you can also buy uh beer and you can also buy fried food but as you walk through the parking lot you start to realize that the, the it, it's kind of like a hanna barbera um landscape background where like the fried food just starts repeating itself so you know, <laughs> if you start at, say, the Coca-Cola stage where we played, you'll see uh, Rick's Pizza to your right, um, which is kind of a kind of a racist, uh, a, a racist pe- looking pizza place that has like sort of crafty looking. Could, could be Italians. They could be Turks um, holding up pizza slices. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I love when I go to the Turkish uh, pizzeria and I think. They- I keep trying to just grab my damn slice. They'll never give it to you, man. Keep on flipping it around. They'll never give you the slice. You'll never get that slice. You got to do the little <laughs> head movement and then just like snatch it out of their hand, you know? Um, uh, yeah, I think that that's got to be my version of like, you know, the um, if your soul weighed, you know, in, in, in ancient Egypt, like if your soul weighed more than a feather, mm-hmm. uh, that, then, you know, you wouldn't be allowed to cross into the field of reeds and instead you'd be, you know, devoured by a, a crocodile. That's right. Um, my version of that 
is uh, if you cannot grab the ice cream from the crafty Turk, then uh, you, you do not get to cross the field of reeds uh, and instead are uh, devoured by the self-same crocodile. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you, you have to brave that. You have to brave Rick's. Um, you'll, you'll walk by uh, a place selling, you know, fried funnel, like something like funnel cake. I don't know. There's a lot of donut, corn dog sort of places. And as you keep walking, you start seeing um, these, these food stands repeat themselves. So I thought there was going to be like, you know, a rainbow of food available. And I did eventually find a Filipino place that was selling pork on a stick, which was really good. But, um, but your general food options are like, are like uh, deep fried stuff and, and pizza. And it, and it sort of has a tendency to repeat um i mean it's no no wonder you know this is no wonder sort of western alienation is such a great force in our culture you know it's uh in in the in the east uh we're all sort of you know a a coterie of big city perverts who enjoy various kinds of creative ways of serving sushi yeah uh ortolan adrenochrome whatever and yet out 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 west you know the, the the unloved west all they have is four different kinds of you know um four four different kinds of the same pizzeria and then a funnel cake that's right. It's um, it's 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 for for too long, you know. Uh, Ottawa has ignored the plight of the Western man. Well, I, okay. Speaking of Eastern perversion, one thing that they did have, and they had multiple versions of this. There were there were probably three different stalls selling the same thing, but they had um, authentic Quebec style poutine. Did they? What was it? No, no, not at all. I mean, I mean, okay, of course. I mean, it looked kind of like poutine, but then they had all these uh, just sort of esoteric options like one of them you could get like chicken wings on the poutine you know it's not that's not really poutine at that point that's just chicken wings with fries yeah and gravy and cheese yeah that's more of a you're really allowing the thing to get bigger than its container in that case it's more of a garbage plate really i mean it's more of a your your uh standard northern new york state garbage plate so they were selling garbage plates disguised as poutine and then you know because i wanted to experience I wanted to experience all of the stampede. I, I took a little detour uh, into the uh, Nutrien um, Agribusiness Pavilion, which is sort of at the center of the of the stampede parking lot. And let me uh-huh. tell you, they haven't really managed to integrate the sort of 4-H stuff and uh, the fried food in a way that feels seamless because it's extremely jarring to be eating like pork on a stick and then walk into the Nutrien Pavilion and uh, see a little, uh, you know, a little pen that says, "Come and pet the piglets." Yeah, of like, course. Uh, look, do, look, do you know what? Do you want to know what happens to it between here and the parking lot? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we have, we we have a version of Bovine University that actually co- wraps around the saddle dome, and out the back, it you know goes to Rick's Pizza or the pork, pork, pork on a stick or funnel cakes somehow. Uh, yeah. yeah, delicious, wonderful. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, so you you went you went into what is essentially yeah like the um the 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 agrodome where you learn about what like the corn of tomorrow that can fight off predators with muscly arms. Yes. Yes. Wonderful. They were really um they were really selling uh beekeeping. There was a there was a massive beekeeping stall and um I th- I think the the sort of general idea behind the beekeeping stall was that you need to spend a shitload of money buy bees, buy the hives, buy all the special gear that you need to keep the bees because it's going to increase your canola yields. That's like, that was sort of the, uh, that was sort of the pitch for the, for the bee, the bee part of the pavilion. Still a little bit like the, the sort of the, the, the agribusiness bit of, uh, of this pavilion, certainly trying to uh, stay in the loop uh, in different bits of the industry that are catching up uh, away from it. Kind of reminds me of like, all, I see a lot of ads in the UK that are just like different fields of like, wind like big um wind power plants or solar panels mm-hmm. or people walking in a forest and then at the end the logo is just shell yes yeah. <laughs> okay good. and i mean i had to remember as i was how, walking how did the these d- colonies collapse was it just all by themselves did they just stop wanting to be colonies it's a mystery it's a mystery to me as I was walking through the pavilion, though, I, I, I had to keep remembering that Nutrien, the fertilizer provider, is, you know, at the center of this um, sanctions-related oopsie that Canada is currently experiencing where... Uh, Wait, sorry, which, which one? Is it the one where we had to... We accidentally kept that one part that required that was required for the lights to stay on in Europe? 
or was it where we accidentally created a bunch of carve outs to that basically jack up the prices of everything that Russia and Belarus sell? It's that one. Uh, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. Not the, of this really well designed. And you know, just before we go into, into this anymore, just never forget who was fucking behind these. Who designed yeah. this whole thing? Who was the campaigning force for it? It was Christia Freeland, yes. who's like putatively the next prime minister, who has designed what I think is a, um, I get what I, I personally believe to be, again, an, an ineffective form of economic warfare that mostly targets the worst off in uh, every involved country, um, but uh, seems to have manifestly even failed to do the job that it was designed to do. Yeah. So you're, you're fighting your mortal enemy and what you do is you angrily take a banana out of your pocket and you peel it and you narrow your eyes and you grit your teeth and you throw the banana peel on the floor and you give them, you flip them the bird and then you stomp on the banana peel and you tumble three, four times in the air and land directly on your uh, sciatic nerve. And then you go, ooh, ah. Oh, no, what, what's causing all of these food prices to go up so high? Um, anyway, who could possibly say, however... Um, you know, we, all of the, the the beneficiaries of high food and energy prices do seem to be the people who sell nitrogen and and oil, uh, who seem to uh, have benefited from the spike in their price. Yes, which is fantastic. Yeah, a good, yeah, excellent, ten out of ten. Well, a good well thing done. to do before you put together angrily put together a sanctions package, the mother of all sanctions package, the bunker buster sanctions package, or whatever. A good thing to do would be to just check a couple of things about your country. You know what it imports and what it produces. And, you know, you could check and see, uh, oh, uh, 85 to 90 percent of all uh, nitrogen fertilizer is imported from Belarus and Russia. And maybe it's not a good idea to put a 35 percent tariff on it before checking if your biggest fertilizer producer has the ability to scale up and fill that gap, which they did not. So and I am talking again about nutrients. So, well, look, number one, they were busy putting together that diorama for the stampede. You know, they don't have time to scale up fertilizer production when it's, you know, we have a very important um, dioramas to make. We have to make a little uh, papier-mâché volcano. Capitalism is great. We all know that, you know, but even even like the greatest inventors like Elon Musk, they don't have all day, you know, that's, there's a lot of papier-mâché volcanoes that need making in the, in the nutrient uh, 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 tent that's uh, right. the stampede. That's right. What else are you going to do? Go watch a clown get killed by a bull? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, come on. I mean, rodeo clowns, though, the true heroes. There should be, uh, they, need, they need valor ribbons for those rodeo clowns. Yeah. Well, I think if you, well, here's, what if you made rodeo clowning much more dangerous, also made it much more prestigious source of fertilizer? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, There's no, a lot of nitrogen in those big shoes and noses, you know. <laughs> um, so what? So this is what else do you see in this uh, big in this big tent of uh, uh, talking about the future of food? P.S. Don't worry about why food now needs a bunch of new technology to make it happen in the future. We have no idea how that happened, but it just it's just one of those things. I mean, again, it was like I, I really felt like there was a there was a total disconnect between the stuff that was outside of the pavilion, which was, you know, kind of what you'd expect from 4-H style, you know, agribusiness uh, uh, conference, you know, like like you've got different breeds of horses. You've got a guy making uh, horseshoes in the way that his great grandfather did. You've got, you know, a working blacksmith. You have a different, a bunch of different pens with different breeds of sheep, and the, the and the one breed of sheep called the Romanov breed, the sheep is missing for some reason. I thought that was pretty good. I mean, you know, it's uh, a lot of people like to say that the missing Romanov sheep are the victims of a great historical crime, but I'm just saying, look, look at the conditions on the farm, you know, before you start, before you start, you know, like 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 like, like shooting off about who did what. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's uh, <laughs> it, look. It seems like you had a really fun time on your little, what I can only assume was a really uh, little holiday that was very relaxing and that you just um, basically was the whole, I, I assume that also the Pacific Northwest part was fun. You yeah. got to go play in the, in the venue from that, um, from that movie Green Room. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, Olympia did have a bit of a Green Room vibe. Uh, Eugene had a bit of a Green Room vibe. We did get to play in a very famous venue in Olympia, the uh, Capitol Theater, where you know, like uh, Pacific Northwest luminaries such as Bikini Kill and Sleater Kinney and Unwound all played shows. And that was that was really good. That was rewarding. Um, 
One thing I will say, though, is that the sort of, let's say, just explosion of unhoused people that uh, that you see you've been seeing in California over the last five to six years has now uh, completely hit the Pacific Northwest as well. Um, mm. Yeah. And there was a I, I mean, there was a real feeling being there of the wheel like Arlen drummer from Wolf Parade and I kept kept noticing and, and Spencer as well that there's a feeling of the wheels coming off the bus, you know. OK, tell, tell me. Tell me. So it seems like the post pandemic, you know, the, the sort of post pandemic collapse of, of uh, commercial business and real estate have, have left these sort of just weird gaps where the machine is running. The machine of capitalism is running. You can, you, but you know, like, I mean, this is a minor complaint, but just, I noticed in Portland, like you'll never really know if something is open or not, you know, it might just randomly be closed. And, and just moreover, like, Getting around airports, like, I mean, there are tons of articles about this. People love to complain about how shitty airports are now, but they're right. I mean, it's, you know, you feel that they are understaffed. You feel a sort of haunted house vibe when you are, when you are traveling. Uh, you feel that things are working, maybe it, it not really, the way they should. It, I really do feel uh, what you're saying, though, about like everything just, it feels as though all of the... um all of the error margins have been exceeded for things continuing to run. Yes. And I mean, and the reason it sounds so often like consumer complaining is that the way most people just sort of interact with the economy at large is by consuming services and goods and stuff. And you can get a sense, I think, from your experiences just going and interacting with the economy in a normal way if things are working well. That's exactly that's that's exactly right. Like like you know, we don't perceive the state crumbling, you know, we don't perceive the state crumbling in a material way because especially in America, there is no state infrastructure to interface with. You are only interfacing with capitalism and the network of treats and uh and and you know, uh businesses providing services. There's there's no there's no state transport to like interact with. There's the, you know, you're just interacting with, uh, yeah, material capitalism. And, and, and more over than that, also consumer capitalism yes. as well. As you, you're interacting with airports and, uh, the, and, and shops and, and, and so on and so on. Taxis. And I mean, it's long, long have we known that sort of all of the state provided um, sort of bits of that in the, you know, in, in the US, we're never really there, or at least we're there like 100 years ago in Canada are kind of creaking and in the UK boy does it depend where you are <laughs> because it it goes between works great and uh is uh, like i don't know the inland empire trying to catch a bus in the inland empire in California which i can only assume is very difficult yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's oh i would also add you know the other big signifier is that the big shift that i noticed is you know the pacific i grew up in the pacific northwest there i've always there's always been uh, a sort of floating population of unhoused people uh, up and down the coast. That's just true, you know. But it has exponentially grown, and the one big difference I can I can sort of see with my own eyes from say 2019 to 2022 is that these unhoused people are so poorly provided for, and the systems that um, support their lives are are so creaky. That they are now building uh, what I would call informal architecture, which is something I've never seen really that far up the coast. Like I've seen it, in, I saw it in California before the pandemic, but definitely just driving up and down between Southern Oregon and Northern Washington, just seeing actual structures built, you know, per, semi-permanent structures built under uh, highway overpasses, for instance, in vacant lots. You know, I'm talking like scavenged lumber and and like like actual shanty towns now popping up. And one one interesting side note is everywhere you look in this corridor, you're going to see one type of garbage, and that is electric scooters that have been destroyed and or thrown away. <laughs> Part of, you know what I mean? Like like that. Uh, we we kept seeing just piles of scooters. You know. Uh, under a bridge thrown into a river like and that that's the scooter became representative to me of just like this sort of failure of the last gasp of like utopian capitalism of 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 like our decade you know like maybe this will fix it 
That's liter- that is what the scooter companies all are. Is that the scooter companies are all just sort of physical manifestations of the interest rate being zero. Yes. Right. Exactly. Of, of the idea that you can that you can just combine like you can just become a rentier of a thing that you can just spread out everywhere, um, just circumvent every single sort of law, regional, um, the, the local ordinance, whatever you want to fucking circumvent every regulation that's designed to like stop insane shit like this from happening and then just no one really asked for them no one really likes them no one likes them no they're pretty useless but they were just everywhere because what if there was a market there i guess we have to capture it in order to capture it we have to create it and then a bunch of other people are also going to try to capture our market which means that just we end up with piles and piles and piles of useless scooters that if you imagine money is representing a claim on human labor, <laughs> that if it was directed at anything else, could have created, I don't know, a house for someone anything or whatever. Else. Well, Any, Riley, anything else. You say it could have provided a house for somebody, but I did see one sort of encampment in, uh, in Portland where people had uh, essentially taken a bunch of scooters and created sort of a defensive fortification with them. So... I mean, if you write that in a fucking story, they'd be called get called heavy-handed. Yeah, it's wor- it's working. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, but you know, I think. I mean, I'm a firm believer that sort of most things that most things are caused by the question of either how am I going to eat or how am I going to ensure that my children and their children never need to work to eat. Yeah, and if most big choices are kind of made on the basis of those and the answers to those questions. And if the way that the state decided we're going to keep social reproduction taking over is, you know, to have interest rates be zero and we live in a and we live in the, the world of financialized capitalism, you know, where it is your access to just this whole sort of shifting morass of, of, of fictional capital enables you to, you know, um, do and be whatever you need to do and be. But I suppose if we were has spent the since 2008 basically living at the extreme of that because any deviation from that extreme would have caused the kind of crisis that we're in now um then i, I mean of course it's heavy-handed i suppose that's why it's very reality is very heavy-handed because it's all been <laughs> we sort of had it turned up to 11 since 2008 yeah yeah it's been cranked yeah. and now you know you do get the feeling of 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 you were just living in the aftermath of the of the blast radius of 2008 like finally sort of the the explosion has reached its like terminal limit and and you're just wandering around being like oh this is how this is how it is now yeah absolutely it it, it is an absolute i mean god i mean the so i can't i really can't get over the uh uh explosive bob explosive population and and unhoused people uh creating shanty towns surrounded with just like someone who roll who just did a roll of the dice uh, and then caused lots of other rolls of the dice as well. Yes. Uh, which is just fantastic. Yeah. Um, anyway, lay look, uh, shall we uh, go into our second half? Let us do that. Let us go into the second half after uh, this, these reflections on the Pacific Northwest. Uh, hey, future Dan and Riley, what do you have to say about the subject of fertilizers? And who do you have as a guest? No looking at the title. <laughs> Ah, well, thank you very much, past Riley and Dan. How uh, erudite, but worn lightly. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps uh, some are saying uh, the greatest first half of a podcast episode in Canadian history. Uh, future me is saying that, or present me. Yes, well, past you to people listening to it in the future. Um, look, we are uh, delighted, however, uh, to welcome uh, our guest for the second segment. It is uh, Syracuse University's Matt Huber, who has written Climate Change as Class War, available now on Verso. Matt, how's it going? Great. How are you? Uh, very, very well, thanks. Very well. And we are here today to talk about something that I think often goes under-discussed when talking about climate change, especially when talking about Canada and Canada's relationship to climate change, which is the nitrogen and fertilizer industry. This is something that, that you write in your book about sort of climate, climate change uh, as class war, which is that a lot of this can be, these dynamics can be understood in terms that are, would be pretty, let's say, explicable in terms of Marx, where we look, for example, at carbon intensive industries as allowing us to keep prices low to keep wages low. Is that mm-hmm. about right? 
Yeah, Marx actually argues that like capitalism has this structural compulsion to cheapen all commodities actually by competing with other capitalists. You're trying to kind of beat them out in the market. And through those processes of competition, you'll tend to, you know, try to price your stuff lower and and win out in competition. But he actually argues that this um, this cheapening process also cheapens the commodities needed to reproduce labor, labor power, as he calls it. And he really, his, his whole theory really hinges on this idea that the more value that capital can suck from the worker, the more uh, profit, and he calls it surplus value, they're able to make. So if you can actually reproduce the workers at a cheaper value, you can actually suck more surplus value from them. So this structural compulsion that cheapen commodities actually helps capitalists um, extract more value from the workers themselves. And it, as he says, it not only cheapens the commodities, but he, he has a nice way of phrasing it. It cheapens the worker, uh, him or herself. And I think those of us that kind of live off Cheez-Its and soda, sort of, <laughs> it's like this kind of cheap food culture. Like it, 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 it actually like you get a sense of what he meant by that, that kind of like um, the, these commodified lives, the working class uh, leads are not um, always with the most fulfilling and uh, rich products to reproduce our lives with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all you kind of have to do is look at uh, just basic grocery shopping. And, you know, I, I know that if I go to the farmer's market, for instance, and I'm buying a bunch of uh, beautiful locally produced radishes, for instance, mm-hmm. here, here at the Jean market, I'm paying uh, absurdly more money for them than if I were sure. to buy, say, canned radishes at the grocery store. Wait, can you buy canned radishes? Uh, that's a good point. I may have just invented a food. <laughs> copyright, 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 copyright. I can do it. Damn I get a hundred percent canned radishes. Everyone loves the, my canned radishes. That's right. Um, so I was just so that I think like. With that in mind, right, and thinking about sort of what you call, you know, nitrogen, nitrogen capital, nitrogen politics is looking at how sort of a carbon intensive industry of which the creation of nitrogen fertilizer absolutely is. It's also a very Canadian uh, industry as after I believe Russia and Belarus, uh, Canada is one of the um, uh, sort of larger producers of, of fertilizers in the world. Um, but that the with this extremely production inten- carbon intensive form of production, we're sort of able to create food, as you say, massively cheaply. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the, the sort of green, sort of the, the fertilizer uh, revolution that happens about 100 years ago, the green revolution that takes place in the 60s and 70s, all of these things that make food very cheap um, are sort of accompanied by, an, uh, by sort of capital allowing, especially sort of in, in the developing world and stuff, uh, allowing food to remain very cheap. And by making, and it's, I think that it, it's not to say uh, food should be more expensive but rather looking at the proliferation of cheap industrially produced food as a kind of cog in a machine of wage depressing, right? Mm, yeah, it's a good way of looking at it. And you can really kind of, you know, like at the heart of cheap stuff is what we call the industrial revolution, which ultimately takes us back to like coal and the steam engine. And, and so like this capitalist world we live in, which I think, you know, there's a lot um, we, we, that's very good <laughs> about industrial production and, and also even fertilizer production. I mean, it's, it's dramatically increased yields per acre and sort of unbelievable people again, like a hundred years ago would find it insane uh, how much food we can produce in such little land because of this stuff. Um, but it all goes back to fossil fuels. I mean, the coal for the steam engine, the, mainly fossil fuels to power electricity systems, which became um, more predominant in the 20th century. And then, uh, yeah, for nitrogen fertilizer in particular, to produce it, you need basically two elements, nitrogen gas, which you can get for free from the atmosphere. If you didn't know, it's like 80% of the air we breathe uh, is actually nitrogen. And uh, the other element is hydrogen. And you you combine, it's called ammonia synthesis, and it takes a ton of energy and pressure and you combine this nitrogen with hydrogen but you have to produce the hydrogen first and the cheapest way to produce it is surprise surprise from fossil fuels and 
uh, here in Canada or here in the United States and in Canada, here in North America, you know, we tend to use natural gas for that feedstock to provide the hydrogen. In China, probably the other, the major fertilizer producer in the world, they use a lot of coal for it. Um, but either way, you're using a, an extremely fossil fuel intensive way, um, uh, method to produce this hydrogen. So that's a problem. And you could use, you know, hydrogen is included in lots of things that aren't carbon intensive, like, you know, nat- natural gas is methane, CH4, but hydrogen is also, sorry to do like a chemistry deep no, dive. Please. No, please. No, sorry. <laughs> water is is also h2o right hydrogen and you can produce hydrogen from water it's a process called electrolysis and but lo and behold it's way more expensive and way more energy intensive actually to do it so um for about 100 years capitalists have found the cheapest way to produce this stuff is through uh, fossil fuels so we got to figure out a way um out of that of course. And I mean, if we want to talk about the, the way out of it, right, you, you sort of lay out in your book, which again, I, I sort of hasten to add is about much more than, my, than <laughs> nitrogen. It's just this is something that Dan and I have been interested in recently. So this is, this is from your book, and it talks specifically a little more about the scientific process you laid out here. It says, a plant manager of a nitrogen facility in Canada laid out the following logic related to carbon. The quagmire we find with greenhouse gas emissions is, is the chemistry has been set by the scientists Haber and Bosch just over 100 years ago, and there's no change in that chemistry. It is what it is. And so if you're going to make ammonia in this way, you're going to generate this huge amount of CO2. Uh, you go on to say, of course, the only thing set about the Haber and Bosch process is that combining is combining hydrogen with atmospheric nitrogen or conditions of heat and pressure. And um, and specifically, the only the only really set thing is that it's the most profitable means of producing hydrogen. So as you say, there are lots of other ways of doing it. In fact, it is an industry in which there has been, which competition has completely and utterly failed to find, let's say, the most socially useful way of reproducing the labor forces that current exists, currently exist with large amounts of cheap food, um, and is instead settled, surprise, surprise, on the cheapest, uh, which again, uh, with the dynamic you describe at the very beginning, completely unsurprising. There's, there's a lot of excitement now in, in the kind of climate tech world about what's called green hydrogen and um you and and essentially what that means is you set up renewable energy or you know if people are more flexible other zero carbon sources like geothermal or nuclear and you can create with clean zero carbon power you can create hydrogen from water um and you use this technology called uh, electric electrolyzer i don't think i've said that word out loud um and and so this is there's a lot of excitement about this because as we know one of the problems with renewable energy is it's intermittent it's it's variable it only generates power when the sun is shining and the wind is blowing so if you can actually use that power to produce hydrogen you can harness that hydrogen as a form of storage like you can burn it for electricity or you can use it in fertilizer production, you can use it for all these types of things that we need hydrogen for, and you don't need to worry about, you know, you can use it anytime, although yeah. it is. Yeah, go ahead. I, I have a question. Uh, how much water does this process use? I'm just I'm just thinking about water becoming a, uh, let's say, uh, extremely precious commodity after we run out of fossil fuels. So, uh, yeah. yeah, well, the, the, the burning of fossil fuels is definitely making... Um, like, you know, like drought and desertification, a, a problem. So I actually don't know the answer to that. Um, I don't want to say anything definitive. I imagine it takes quite a bit of water as most industrial processes do. In fact, using fossil fuels to make hydrogen uses a ton of water because it's, uh, it's actually oh, done. Good. It's Great. yeah, <laughs> it's done through a process that's called steam reforming. So you actually create steam via boiling water and that kind of interacts with the methane to extract the hydrogen from that process so so that uses a ton of water the fertilizer plants i've visited all are along river systems to draw the those water resources and also to like release the waste products that they have as well (laughs) nice that's that's, that's cool it's just like having it's like when you uh you eat a big meal in your kitchen just throw the garbage on the floor yeah the circle, the industrial circle of life. Yeah. Um, I mean, if, if we also, if we want to talk as well about um, about the specific sort of history of, um, you might say, because uh, again, I, I, I sometimes I like, always like to balance sort of coming off as um, understanding that it is good to have like abundant cheap food. That's fantastic. The conditions under which it's produced 
and the conditions under which it is distributed are the problem. Um, and I think if we want to talk also about conditions under which it's produced, I think the other thing about the um, the history of uh, fertilizer and nitrogen, whether that's from the British Empire or from the Canadian state now, um, is completely unsurprisingly uh, bound up entirely with the uh, displacement and destruction of uh, indigenous lands. Um, I believe the uh, one of the examples uh, you give in the chapter is of, um, in fact, of a the British who I believe discovered and then completely destroyed the entire landmass of um, an island uh, in the, I believe, South Pacific, uh, in or- just in order to get extract all of the nitrogen off of it, right? Or off yeah, the so fertilizer, this, was, this was pre-Haber-Bosch. So at that stage, you know, it's, it's worth going back to this history because before Haber-Bosch, we had to find nitrogen in, you know, you could, you could, get it by growing, you know, things like cover crops, like clover that will kind of fix nitrogen in the soil, or you can use manure, right? Um, But eventually, particularly Europeans and American settlers were just like depleting the fertility of the soil because they were just like growing the same shitty corn like every every year or whatever. And uh, and, um, so they started to deplete the soil and they had to find like more sources of nitrogen. This is just about the time that scientists were sort of figuring out what soil chemistry is supposed to look like, et cetera, et cetera. And so they found in off the coast of Peru that there is these islands where it never rains, by the way. And they're just, it's just filled with like bird shit <laughs> and what is called guano. And um, I always forget if it's bat or bird shit, actually. It's one of the two, or maybe both. But it's like incredible piles of of this guano that is just sort of ca- like sort of hardened over the generations. And it's just this incredible high quality nitrogen source. And so this is like a very different type of extractive production process where you're digging through these piles of shit. And, and in that process, it wasn't just the British, the US were involved and various other powers. And in fact, many Latin American countries like w- went to war over these islands. It's really were they, intense. Weren't they also producing gunpowder with this as well? Because uh, like I would yeah, because nitrogen's a key uh element in munitions. And so Haber and Bosch were actually trying to find the secret to build a bigger bombs for the German um war machine <laughs> in the 20th century. So, um, so there's a whole another story of nitrogen that's really linked to war and not agriculture and food. But anyway, in the guano fields, they, this is an incredibly labor intensive process, unlike the Haber-Bosch process, which is very capital intensive. So they imported the most in, indentured and you would just call them slave laborers from China, mostly maybe also South Asia and, and these workers were subject to the most just horrific uh, working conditions you could imagine. And so this was not only this sort of geopolitical imperial battle over these islands, but it, but it, it featured just on like horrific labor conditions. Now, a good question is how these islands figured into indigenous people's life ways, if you will. And uh, prior to this colonization, I don't actually know the answer. It'd be interesting to see if, if, if those island uh, were, were used in any of the kind of like pre-European like agricultural types of civilizations. It'd be interesting to know, but I actually don't know. I don't think a lot of people were living on these islands, but um, they are close enough to the shore they could have been a resource. Well, uh, even even if uh, even if that particular example was not um, involving, let's say, the more traditional kind of accumulation by dispossession in imperialism, I'm going to read from the, uh, a, an article published on March 16th by Reuters. Canadian firm aims to double potash output, another crucial ingredient in this process, in project on Brazilian indigenous lands. Nice. <laughs> so yeah, another another Canadian-owned uh, mining company. Uh, once again, um, just uh, swanning around the world to essentially demolish the area around uh, the Mura indigenous tribes' um, um, uh, homeland in the uh, in in the Amazon rainforest. Despite the fact that again, it has not consulted with them, it's not obtained any of the right permits. It's just doing it, and everyone's like, "Yeah, well, fine, uh, that's cool. You can just go ahead and do that." So I mean, even even in the case of this this sort of one fairly strange and uh, sort of let's say that sticks out historical example. Uh, it certainly is as has been through history uh, as implicated in the imperial project, especially as it pertains to Canada. 
Yeah, just a quick note that um, it's, you know, I can talk all day about fertilizer. So, you know, we need three nutrients to grow food effectively. And it, it, it's nitrogen, but, but also potassium and phosphorus. And potash is the key ingredient for potassium and phosphorus, obviously phosphate. So, but for potash and phosphate, it's very different than nitrogen because it's literally digging the mining the shit and and digging it from from natural deposits. So, actually, somewhat similar to that guano extraction process. So, phosphate mining and also potash production are these very land intensive very destructive labor uh, production processes. Whereas the Haber-Bosch was this huge breakthrough because it figured out how to make nitrogen in these, in these small fact, well, not small, but like in terms of land impact, like uh, relatively small factories that are harvesting the nitrogen from the, the air to combine it with hydrogen. So nitrogen is kind of like this, this interesting outlier between the other two where we, where we use this like very industrial process, whereas the other two were still kind of mining the shit from the land. It's just brute, brute force extraction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's uh, it's the same. We use in, in in that case, you know, we use the same strategy, which is uh, Canada says to ever anyone who wants to dig something from the ground, go ahead and list here uh, in Canada. We'll take care of you know going to whatever country you want to mine in and encouraging them to rewrite their mining code. Uh, that's the bit that we'll provide. Mm-hmm. And so I think like with all taking bringing all of this together, right? The sort of the role of fertilizer production in keeping wages low, again, not because abundant cheap food is a bad thing, but because of the way in which it is executed, the way in which it is done very cheaply, and then the way in which it is used as a tool to keep wages down, um, or as a a cog in a machine that keeps wages down, rather. And also thinking about it in terms of uh, the fact that it is that the extraction of these things, even when it's not produced industrially, extraction of other sort of key ingredients in fertilizer tends to require um, this sort of an advanced um, sort of blood-soaked imperial mining machine, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. Taking all of these, th- and, and the fact that this has also been kind of the case since the Industrial Revolution, these things haven't stopped. And even then, our best process for creating nitrogen is essentially um, turn on a big diesel generator, it seems. <laughs> right. Taking all this together, it's not surprising that um, a lot of uh, governments, so the ones that leap to mind right now, are uh, the Dutch and the Canadian are attempting to drastically to in order to meet climate targets and attempting to drastically reduce the amount of nitri- of, of fertilizer that farmers are allowed to use. Matt, I want to know what you think of these kinds of processes. Um, what the when any potential shortcomings with the, with these rules, or if it's basically a good thing. So there's a lot to say. Um, first is. I, I tend to, uh, I, I like to focus a lot on the emissions that come from production of nitrogen, which is these big factories. And they produce a ton of carbon emissions just from the chemical process of producing it. So that's one thing. But the other fun, fun uh, fact is <laughs> when the farmers apply the nitrogen on their fields, it interacts with the so- soil in a way that can reduce, that can create nitrous oxide which is a greenhouse gas. <laughs> so, so the farmers are also participating in greenhouse gas. And it's, a, it's actually a big part of the sort of greenhouse gas footprint of the entire industry. The that's, other, yeah, go I, ahead. I was just going to say, that's really interesting to me because, you know, we've covered this, the, we covered this in the, a little bit. We got into it on the previous segment on the show, but um, this sort of narrative that's emerging around nutrient uh, Canadian fertilizer company, angling through sanctions by the Canadian government against Russia and Belarus, who are big potash producers, uh, sort of angling to become the world's biggest uh, nitrogen fertilizer producer. The messaging around that, nothing is mentioned about environmental impact. It's all sort of couched in the language of uh, green technology, giving a benefit to farmers, and, and, and sort of there's a subtle backdrop of like Canada will become self-sufficient and also make a buck on top of that. That I mean, obviously that didn't play out because Nutrien seems to be unable to scale up production to, uh, to meet this deficit that's coming in due to sanctions. So, so yeah, that's, that's fascinating that they didn't, didn't mention the environmental impact part of uh, nitrogen production. They, yeah, they never do. They like to talk about how they, 
are the key industry feeding the world. That's their narrative. And, and, and so, um, you know, which again has says very little about how food is distributed and how hunger is socially produced. But I would, I would add that, um, the main, so because the farmers are involved in emissions, they are also involved. You've probably heard of, you know, the, the, the big crisis with nitrogen is, is farmers over apply it to their fields and it leaches into water and it creates this eutrophication that, that can um, lead to these toxic algae blooms and all sorts of horrible water pollution. Right. And, and so that water crisis is probably the actually, you know, putting climate change aside, that's probably the biggest environmental crisis that faces the industry. They're getting such criticism. And so the industry, which again, produces the nitrogen and profits from it is always trying to say that what we need to do is get these irresponsible farmers to apply this stuff more responsibly. <laughs> it's kind of like the fossil fuel industry telling us all that we need to care about our carbon footprint. And, you know, we're the ones that are really the ones to blame and who are responsible, not us, not the producers. And so um, they come up with all these programs and ideas about how these farmers can be more efficient, how they can apply it in ways that allow the plants to take it up more efficiently. And it's all about displacing responsibility from them who not only emit a lot in the production, but also they make more money the more the farmers waste it by over applying it. Yeah. And so their whole business model is sort of it's it's built into their business model that farmers are just using this as a, a hedge against um you know like um any sort of weather related crop, crop failures. Crop or- failures. They just sort of dump nitrogen to, to just hope it will grow no matter what. And so this is part of the, the industry's business model that these farmers are wasting it. And they turn it into this very moralistic, like these, these irresponsible, you know, uneducated farmers just don't know how to be responsible with this. And it's really, it's really about displacing all the, the um, political uh, uh, focus from themselves. Right. Right. And I think like, we can also see, right, and it, with all of that being said, you know, there, there are these protests in the Netherlands that are sort of, um, again, seen as much like the, I think a little like the Canadian trucker protests are sort of being sort of seized on as a, by a lot of right-wing media as a sort of, you know, moment of, um, moment of rebellion of the hobbits against the high elves uh, in order to use the confusing language that they've all adopted now. <laughs> um, uh, it's they are all talking like this now. It's completely insane. That really, like by even even by making a law, I think that uh, you know you, we have to limit the amount of fertilizer that we use. Um, what we're not doing is we're not thinking. Almost going all the way back to the beginning of uh, well, wait, why is it why is it so cheap? What's it doing? Will we be able to reproduce society? You know, if we just if if we just push on this lever and we don't understand where else we have to compensate, if we don't, for example, raise wages. Right. And, you know, also think about different ownership, ownership models for production, right? Um, Lee Harris, who's a great reporter for the American Prospect, um, just wrote a piece that tried to retell the history of, in the United States, the Tennessee Valley Authority, which is a federally owned public, you know, they're a public power entity, they generate tons of tons of electricity. But during, um, Around the 30s and World War II, they also got really involved in fertilizer production. And they did that for, you know, building, you know, food production uh, vigor for the war and all this kind of other stuff. But they noticed that, you know, there's a public interest in having a coordinated, planned system to produce fertilizer. Because as we're seeing right now, when you have these, you know, geopolitical strifes and fertilizer uh, flows get cut off, it can lead to you know, we're looking at serious uh, threats of world hunger and much of uh, much of the world because of these um, supply chain blockages with the fertilizer network. So if you start to think about, you know, fertilizer and food and agriculture are more like a public good and not just something the not just something capitalists should be able to control for their own profit, then you can start to think about how we could like plan the production of this stuff more with wider env- environmental whoa, and also social. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't plan the economy here. <laughs> that's that's, that's sounded, crazy, man. That's, I mean, that's basically pretty socialist. <laughs> all the, like the whole thing with the pandemic, like where, Oh, we don't know how to get masks anymore. Like where are the vaccines? Like all this stuff um, could be solved with, you know, just basic 
conscious planning. And some of you Canadians might know a good friend of mine, Lee Phillips, who's Canadian, and he wrote a book called The People's Republic of Walmart, which argues that actually the biggest planners in our economy today are big corporations like Walmart and, and Amazon, which actually have these supply chains coordinated with huge you know, algorithms and information technology, and they are doing centralized planning like the Soviets could only dream of. Yeah. Um, but what we want is actually public planning where the goals are not profit and um, you know, making yourself more of a billionaire like Jeff Bezos, but but actually like, you know, dealing with these really social ecological problems in a very coordinated and, and conscious and planned way. Well, um, <laughs> I, I mean, this is, this is, once again, I think we, we've discovered that um, we, can, we cannot just uh, sort of lurch from uh, crisis to crisis forever. But uh, uh, my God, are our leaders committed to the idea of doing that? They love yeah. to do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to say, uh, sort of noting noting the time here, uh, Matt. Uh, any final words uh, to cap off our discussion about nitrogen at all capitalism? Um, no, just that you know, I wanted to agree with something you said before, which is, I think typically an environmentalist perspective would just sort of be like, oh, this stuff is dirty and takes a lot of fossil fuels, so it's bad, so we should reject it. But I actually think. There's some estimates, like there's this book about the history of nitrogen that basically estimates like a few, at least a couple billion people wouldn't be alive today without this Haber-Bosch process. And it's, it's, it's created an unbelievable uh, level of productive capacity for food that we definitely can't escape at this point. <laughs> so I, again, I think, it, but it creates a lot of social problems that we have to confront as a society and as a hopefully democracy and we can't and the more we just allow it to be run um for profit by these capitalists i think the more the like you said these crisis crises are just going to keep propping uh, cropping up over and over again uh well uh i think with with all that being said uh matt huber uh the author of climate change as class war i want to thank you very much for coming and talking to us today it has been a very interesting discussion thank you so much for having me yeah thanks, and matt. uh to all you out there in podcast land, a reminder, there is a second episode uh, that will come out next week that you will be able to hear if you subscribe to the Patreon as subscribe. normal. You know how it works. You've heard this kind of thing before, possibly from us. So uh, do go ahead and do that when you get the chance. And maybe we'll see you on that episode. Bye, everyone. Bye, folks.